Lingua Britannica is a podcast that uses ethnographic interviews to study language use in the extreme metal community. We are studying a music scene known for its love of themes and topics generally considered offensive, and it is likely that some episodes will touch on topics or opinions some listeners may find tasteless or ethically problematic. Ethnographic researchers aim to adopt the interviewee's point of view so that we can draw out and study the attitudes, beliefs, and practices that are important to them. We want to make it clear that in presenting these conversations here, we do not endorse any of their content. Our aim is to explore the thought processes behind language use in this long-running international and yet understudied scene. Welcome back again to Lingua Britannica with me, Jess Bunny smith and my co-host, Wes Robertson. Hello. Uh, today, we've got another academic interview for you, this time featuring Lena Dawes. Uh, Lena is a Canadian heavy metal journalist and music and culture critic and has written extensively about the sociology of the metal scene, most notably in her book, What Are You Doing Here? A Black Woman's Life and Liberation in Heavy Metal, first released in 2013. Uh, Lynn has since completed a master's in liberal studies at the New School for Social Research in New York and is currently a doctoral candidate in ethnomusicology at Columbia University. Uh, Lena, thanks so much for being with us today. Great. Thank you for having me. So just to begin the interview, uh, well, obviously, this will go in a different way than our, our interviews with, uh, you know, lyricists. We do want to start in the same place, which is just asking, uh, how did you get into metal and what were your first steps into the scene? How did you become not just a researcher, but a, a fan? Um, I've been a fan since I was eight, I usually say. Um, Kiss, a gateway band for a lot of people. Um, first saw the, you know, like grew up in an era that, um, I grew up in rural Ontario, so I guess cont contextually, grew up in a very rural neighborhood with a lot of older teenage boy neighbors who were listening to Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, you know, Smoke on the Water, and I always kind of was really interested in that music. Um, I come from a very musical family, so in terms of listening to various types of music, it's not really a big deal in my, in my family. So um, I have an older sister that was, you know, um, kind of getting into like the punk scene through her friends, and we discovered Kiss. And I just became a massive KISS fan. And so I think that kind of using KISS as a gateway kind of opened my eyes up to an, a lot of other heavier bands over the next couple of years. So I immediately, right after KISS, am being fascinated not only with the music, but also the imagery um, at the time, you know, being eight years old and like just seeing this like, evil and power and mystery and and you know I always say like I've said in my book that I think that for me as a kid um, KISS really kind of gave me a sense of power and control and dominance that I I really needed at the time as a kid kind of growing up in the environment that I was growing up in so, you know, for, again, for a lot of people, um, KISS was a gateway band for me, and so I wanted something heavier and faster 
and all of that stuff. So I then discovered the new wave of British heavy metal. And then it just went from there in terms of getting involved with like Judas Priest, Queensryche at the time, obviously Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, um, Iron Maiden, and a lot of the British bands that were coming out in kind of, I guess that would have been like the early 80s. Um, and so kind of that kind of surgency of British heavy metal bands that were slowly kind of making their way um, in terms of popularity into North America. Awesome. And so what inspired you then to kind of translate that interest in heavy metal into, uh, you know, a research topic? Um, I think it was always like, you know, just being a huge fan of metal as a kid and never having any friends interested in heavy metal. Um, also being black and wondering why there was no other black people like my black girlfriends were not into, you know, the music that I was into and, you know, getting older and kind of wondering why I was always the only black person at metal shows and looking at kind of the relationship between race and how the music industry kind of categorizes music based on race but also kind of wondering because of the era in which I was raised where, you know, top 40 radio was a big thing when I was a kid. So you would listen to Queen and then Michael Jackson and then Billy Idol. And it was all just top 40 pop music. And back then the radio was way more musically diverse than it is now. It wasn't as kind of segregated as it is now. So, you know, just growing up in an environment where I was just attuned and had access to a variance of different musical genres. As I got older, I noticed that there was this distinct separation, like in terms of cultivating a black identity, you had to listen to hip hop or R&B or soul, or as a Canadian, it was a lot of Caribbean music. So there was reggae and soca and calypso. And I was just never really interested in that. Um, I was just always interested in listening to music that, you know, uh, that I felt spoke to me and a lot of that music was just heavier, more aggressive music. So I think that as I got older, it was really kind of asking this question. It's like, why is there this distinct difference between race and music? And why am I being kind of vilified? Um, you know, especially as a teenager, you know, I was told like, you know, oh, you're white or you hate black people or you're confused and I was adopted so my family is white but I think that I was very clear on cultivating my black identity and being, being very proud to be a black Canadian but also a diehard metalhead so for me there was a correlation there but I was always interested in looking at why there was so much friction between the two so I didn't really mean to get into like metal scholarship as an academic research, but it was just always something that I felt very passionate about. Um, and in terms of my own kind of activism, in terms of um, I've always been kind of, a, you know, a strong social activist in terms of black, um, you know, black issues. But I always felt that there was a correlation between the anger that I felt in terms of racism and exclusion and the anger I was listening to as a metal fan. And I wanted to do something that kind of brought those two issues together. 
And it really wasn't until, um, you know, I was in my 30s, my late 30s going into 40s where I realized that I could actually do this. And so that's basically what I'm doing now. So what kind of flipped the switch then? Because uh, you published the first edition of What Are You Doing Here in 2013? And what kind of surprised us is that while it's absolutely like uh, an important work of uh, sociological scholarship, it was completed before you began your postgraduate career. Um, so then that's you know quite rare. To, I, I've, I think you might be the first um, postgraduate I've ever met in person that, well, Zoom in person, uh, that actually has a book before they've begun starting their research. <laughs> so what kind of led you to producing this research? What kind of was the, uh, the spark that made you say, sit down and say, okay, I can and am going to write a book? Um, it was you know, years of being a freelance music journalist. And, um, and then I, I really wanted to kind of get more into the academic component of talking more about kind of you know, critical theory and race and like, so I started like applying to speak at academic conferences. And at the time I was a, you know, I was just a writer, you know, in Toronto. And, um, but I knew that I could kind of position myself as an independent scholar looking at kind of race and gender and music. And so um, I was at a conference in Seattle in 2004 and I met um, this guy, uh, Phil Freeman, who at the time was starting to be the editor at Metal Edge. Uh -huh. um, and so this was a long time ago. <laughs> and so, you know, like I, I did a presentation at this conference. I met Phil. He asked me to write for his magazine. So I wrote for Metal Edge for a couple of years. And then Phil um, wrote a book. Um, he proposed a, an anthology called um, Marooned. And it was basically an anthology from various music critics that was like, if you were stranded on a desert island, what would be the album that you would take with you? And so um, he asked me to write for this anthology. And so I wrote about uh, Skin um, from Skunk and Nancy. And I wrote about Stush which was an album that they put out probably in the early uh, 1990s. And I just talked about kind of like how it resonated with me and the fact that this, you know, this black woman, English kind of agro punk singer was really kind of matching the lyricism about race and insecurity and racism in England with kind of this really heavy you know, soundtrack, um, this kind of agro punk metal soundtrack in the 1990s. And from then, um, I met uh, my future publisher and he said, hey, why don't you write a book about this? And I thought, hey, why not? You know, so <laughs> I spent the next three years writing about and, you know, I, I did want to do something on black women in heavy metal, hardcore and punk because you know, my, a lot of my journey has been trying to find other people like me. And so I wanted to write a book where I could actually find people like me, find people who were kind of really resonating with the music. But also I think um, what was really more important to me was how we utilize the music. You know, I think that, and we see this now, it's actually gotten worse since the book came out. 
but in terms of the relationship between kind of blackness and anger and really kind of, I was always really interested because being justifiably angry because of racism or racialized sexism or, you know, whatever inequalities was always so, um, uh, I wouldn't say reviled, but there was always such a negative response to black women being angry or black women having any type of emotional reaction that wasn't kind of moderated by whiteness. And I was, you know, kind of trying to figure out like, what does it mean when stereotypically angry black women are really into angry music? <laughs> and what can mm. that create? Mm -hmm. You know, what does that mean? And how we can utilize this anger for positive. So how can we liberate ourselves by trying to find spaces within our lives where we can be justifiably angry, but that anger is actually channeling a good thing, not a bad thing. So it's about kind of also looking at kind of racial stereotypes, specifically towards black people or black women. And what does that mean when you match it to music? And what does that what does that create? And what liberation does that create for the individual listener or for the musician or for somebody who's in who's in the metal field? What does that mean? And so that was kind of why I wanted to write the book and why it was important. Um, so in terms of like going into the academic, I realized like once I published the book, you know, I um, you know, I had graduated, I did my undergrad, you know, years ago and always wanted to go back to school, but I felt that in terms of taking this subject matter seriously, that I needed to go to graduate school. And I wanted to kind of learn more about what scholarship was out there that I could kind of apply into this theory and kind of like, you know, make it a bigger thing than it actually was. And so that's what kind of led me into graduate school was saying like, you know what, I want to continue on with the subject but how do I do it and how do I do it in a way that can be beneficial to a larger demographic of people versus just, you know, people who are into extreme metal like I am. Mm. Well, one of the things that's really impressive about, uh, you know, your book um, and I would argue is like of clear benefit to the, you know, academic and general um, community who might be interested in um, extreme metal studies is the wide range of interviews that you've worked in, uh, you know, throughout the text, uh, including some really major bands uh, in metal and hard rock. Uh, did you find it difficult to reach out to so many artists and get them to, you know, agree to uh, participate in the book? Um, I did. I did and I resent it in, in hindsight. The, you know, being published by Bazillion Points, which I think is the best publisher and who handles kind of heavy music books, you know, like um, working with Ian Christ really helped in terms of getting people to take me seriously because nobody took me seriously. To be honest with you, like they're mm. looking at a black woman and they just didn't take me seriously. So unfortunately, I needed to be to have a relationship with bazillion points in order to get some of these interviews. Because I tell you, like, I would reach out to people, and I would basically get laughed at. But unfortunately, you know, with a white man's name to it, that's how I got the interview. 
So mm. while I'm fortunate that I was able to kind of do what I needed to do and get the interviews or talk to people or whatever, in hindsight, I really resent it, you know, because it shouldn't yeah. have to be that way. But I think that's indicative of a larger problem, which mm. is that, you know, heavy metal or underground metal or extreme metal, it's so subconsciously white that anyone that kind of upsets the cart in that sense is seen as suspect. And they're also seen as not knowing what the hell they're talking about. And I think that's one thing that um, from being a metal fan or being a rock fan since I was eight years old and being a super nerd about it and knowing my shit, which I know my shit, and always, you know, somebody can just look at you and they can just dismiss you so easily because there is that assumption that you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Hmm. And I think that I dealt a lot with that when I was working on the book um, because I was going to festivals. I was, um, I also worked as a concert photographer. So, and I got, you know, I had the hookup in some ways. I knew people, so I was able to get into the photo pit and actually work and meet people and interview people and I, you know, I busted my ass and for someone to just kind of denote your presence because you're in the wrong, you're the wrong gender and you're the wrong ethnicity is in extremely frustrating. But, you know, what came out of it was a book. And what also I think what's more important is what came out of it is the understanding that this has to go on like there's so much research and there's so many other issues here that I uncovered while working on the book that I want to explore further in my academic uh, career. So did you find this kind of these uh, difficulties securing interviews happen even though that many of the people you were interviewing are themselves black metal fans? Um, yeah, because there were some people that were hesitant. Um, because they were used to being interviewed by white men and felt that white men were the only people that knew anything. And I, so there is, there was a lot of, I mean, there was some, there was a lot of women that I interviewed who were like, oh, thank God I'm talking to another black woman. This is great. Um, but then there was other people that were so kind of in the space where they felt that as a woman, I mean, you know, I mean, there's still, you know, obviously there's a lot more women involved in the scene now, but even like 10, 12 years ago, it was still a struggle in terms of um, being a journalist even and being like, you know, because I worked as a music, you know, I worked as a metal journalist for years. So even that experience was hard because people just didn't take you seriously. So I think it was kind of getting over those kind of misconceptions or preconceptions about not only who I am and why I'm there, but also kind of the knowledge and, you know, the knowledge that I have in order to ask these questions was a bit challenging for people, for sure. Mm. And, you know, of the interviews and the data that you've collected, um, what did you find kind of most uh, surprising um, or contrastingly interesting, um, you know, from those interviews that you developed? Oh, I think that... You know, one thing I'm working on now, um, I've been working on it for about the last month or so, and I haven't started writing this chapter, but what's, I think what's interesting is like the internalized trauma 
that a lot of people have. <clears throat> especially a lot of, like, especially, like, you know, listening to the music, like, how much young black women are using heavy music and not just like my you know my thing is extreme like underground metal but a lot of the women i interviewed were into like hardcore or like punk or you know whatever but how interesting it was how we utilize the music as a almost like a self self-soothing mechanism so how many people like myself are using heavy music to address unaddressed trauma. Um, mm -hmm. and, and also like how we're using music as a form of empowerment. And I think that was really interesting. It wasn't surprise. I mean, for me, it was, I think that, you know, like I grew up in an area where there was no, hardly any black people, you know, so everything was kind of, I was very kind of like, you know, tunnel vision. So it was great to, you know, get out in the world and meet people who are reacting to music the same way that you did when you were a teenager. But it's really interesting to see how people utilize the music for their own self-soothing or for their own to booster their confidence or, um, you know, how we utilize it. Um, so I thought that was really great. Um, and, but I guess the interesting thing is, is that white people do this all the time. So white men do this all the time. This is what heavy metal is, you know? So it's, so it's seeing the similarities in terms of emotionality that we all have and how we all kind of gravitate towards in some ways the same things, um, as a source of understanding, as a mechanism for understanding who we are. And the differences are not that much in terms of like the white the straight white dude and the black girl it's not there's very there's a lot of similarities there in terms of how we perceive the world how we see the world and how we're utilizing kind of heavy music to make sense of the world that we're in um so that was like one of the really cool things about it but what was sad was that you know you had i mean i met a lot of musicians like a lot of women who were bass players, guitar players, or vocalists, or whatever. Um, and I met some people that were not mentioned in the book, and it was sort of like this fear of saying like, oh, you should be in a band, or you should do this. And they were like, oh no, no one's gonna want me because I'm black. And nobody, you know, I'm not, this, I'm not the archetype to be able to go further with what I wanna do with my career. And so even though that's not, again, that's not entirely surprising, it was very depressing to see so many people mm. whose passions were hindered because they were very well aware of the limitations that were out there within the underground scene. Yeah. Mm. So we wondering, because, you know, it, it has been uh, some time since that your, your book has come out. Uh, is, is there... As you as you've gone into this, have you seen this more and more, or are some of these things starting to change as, as you've continued research? Is this is this uh, are the things you said the phenomenon that you're still seeing in the data you're working with today? Um, you know, it's interesting because in some ways I would say that things have gotten worse. Um, and now theoretically things should be getting better because you know the main thing there was this boom you know of this generation after mine. So let's say if you were in your you know, there's a lot of people who grew up with the um, online access. 
they grew up with the internet. They grew up with digital downloading and, you know, even Napster, you know. Um, so there's a, there's a generation of people who grew up having more access to a variance of music genres than I certainly did. Um, and so while it's a natural progression for more people to discover a variance of different musical genres, there's still, unfortunately, a lot of limitations. So even though, like, it's easier for, you know, like when I was a kid, if I wanted a Judas Priest album, I'd have to order it on, you know, I'd have to order it through the mail if my local record store didn't have it. Um, I did tape trading like a lot of people. So I got tapes from, you know, pen pals from across the world. And that's how you learned about, let's say, what was going on in Northern Europe in terms of metal, you know, Celtic Frost or whatever. Um, but now that kids can be online and access this music and you're thinking, great, you know, so there is more, there are more kids or young people involved in heavy metal. We're seeing a lot of metal bands coming out where there's a lot of young black men involved or a lot of um, South Asian men or Latino men. And so it's more diverse. But in terms of this overall kind of accepting ethos of diversification within the metal scene and even the underground scene, it's still very resistant to change. So it goes on both sides. So you've still got, I've got 20-year-old kids that I'm talking to who still feel that they can't listen to metal because it's a white thing. And on the other hand, I'm also seeing a lot of racial, racist resistance from white metal uh, people who are saying that black people don't belong in heavy metal. And in 2021, when we all have access to the internet and we all have the private access to be able to explore and discover whatever genres we want, that's a very kind of reductive way of thinking. We should not be thinking this way in 2021. But yet, not only are we still thinking this way, it's actually gotten worse. So one of the things that I wish I could have done this summer but I, you know, I'm really concerned about like living in the States now, living in New York, I'm very concerned about um, heightened racial tensions here. Um, as you guys know, America is basically a shit show right now um, in terms of the political and the social structure. I mean, it's awful living here. Um, and I'm really concerned that people who have these far right views, there's a lot of them in the metal scene, and what happens when you have this new generation of, you know, kids of color who are wanting to go see a show, they want to go see corn or you know, whatever, and they're being confronted with these old school metal people who are still thinking that, no, you shouldn't be here. You're not the wrong, you're the wrong gender, the wrong ethnicity. And I have heard stories of kids getting beat up. I have heard stories of black kids getting harassed at shows, and this should not be happening in 2021. So we're still seeing that like the political climate of what's happening in the outside world is permeating the metal scene. And it's really kind of, it's still hindering people 
from getting out and, um, you know, either enjoying a show, supporting a show, or whatnot. I mean, I don't think I would feel comfortable seeing a show, quite honestly, right now, because there's too many, you know, crackheads out there. Like, you don't know what people are doing. And so that is something where, while there were problems and issues when I was writing the book over a decade ago, Unfortunately, those issues of, um, you know, racial discrimination and also misogyny um, and just rampant sexism have actually gotten worse um, in the scene. And so that has been extremely disappointing. And I think that also in terms of like the media point of view or like, um, you know, popular culture, there still is this huge division in terms of um, the cultivation of identity based on music and who should be listening to what in order to cultivate the identity. So there's still this huge division between, let's say, hip hop and heavy metal. There's mm. still this, you know, consternation of one person delving, dipping into the other. There's still this division. And, and part of that is not necessarily people's issue. It has to do with the machinations of the music industry because we are making money off these divisions. The music industry is making money off these divisions. And so that has become more prominent simply when you have less people buying music. Um, and so we're still seeing this. You can't listen to that because it's this and you can't listen to this because it's that. Um, and so there's, I find that there's even more divisions in terms of even people entering or saying, you know, I want to go to this show or I want to do this or I want to listen to that or, you know, there's still these divisions where people are thinking, hold on, can I do that because I'm black or is it okay to do that because I'm South Asian or, you know, am I going to be accepted here? What's going to happen? Um, and so there still is that problem that really I think shouldn't exist. So, sorry, when you say um, making money, do you mean like because uh, like no, no, don't spend your money on that hip hop album. Keep your money on in our metal record. Keep your money in this category so that our record gets it. Is, is, that, is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, like I think that there is money to be made by kind of marketing a let's say a hip hop artist as being authentically black. So therefore, if you're a kid and you want to, um, you know, in terms of the cultiva cultivation of black identity, it's sort of like, well, if you listen to this and you're really black. Um, if you listen as a white kid, and I think that this is, this is very hypocritical because, <clears throat> you know, white kids can do whatever the hell they want. They can listen to wherever they want and they're accepted into whatever space they want to. For black kids, it's not the same. So it's harder for a black kid to want to get into, let's say, be a front person of a metal band than it is for a white kid who wants to be, the, you know, be a hip hop artist. So there's still this hypocrisy there about allowances into these cultural spaces. Um, and I think that the, the marketing, the music industry kind of benefits from that. So, mm. I mean, I just found out the other day, like, you know, I get... Um, promos, I get about 20-30 promos a day from various record labels and one of the ones that I get on a regular basis I found out was a right-wing fascist record label. I didn't even know. 
I, I just happened to find out through somebody. I'm like, hold on. I said, don't I get like news? Like, don't I get regular emails from this, you know, this thing, you know? And the thing is, is that even though these, there's record labels that are putting out far right, you know, far right white nationalist bands, NSBM bands, or even bands that aren't NSBM, but have some, you know, like some weird shit going on. Um, they will still pump them out because people will listen to them because people don't care the ideology behind these bands, mm. you know, so they still sell, they still will be marketed. And as long as nobody says anything, it's, it's all good. Right. Mm. And so I think that is kind of one of the things when I talk about kind of the music industry or kind of like how these things get perpetrated because there's not enough outrage and nobody cares enough to really kind of think about how these particular artists or these groups are actually disseminating nationalist or nationalist ideology, which is actually very harmful to a lot of people. And in some ways, you know, like if you want to think about Kanye West and the album, you know, that just dropped a couple of days ago, we could even go the same way in terms of artists who are extremely problematic and we should not be supporting them, but who cares because the music industry supports them and they're still going to market them and promote them even though these artists are putting out messages or have done things that are extremely harmful to potentially to their listeners. So it goes you know, in some ways, it's both ways in terms of, you know, like thinking if you're thinking ethically and morally about music, then the music industry might not be the place for you. <laughs> because as long as there's people who are willing, who do not give a shit what these people are saying in their lyrics or what they're doing, what they're saying outside of the music in terms of their political ideology, this is going to be a problem. So... You know, I think that it's it's very, you know, the way how things are going in terms of just people doing what they want to do. And for me, it's not about listening to what you want to listen to, but it's actually if you want to get involved in the music industry, you know, as a musician, as a manager, as a photographer or whatever, you know, you should be able to. But there's still a lot of resistance there. There's still a lot of resistance that shouldn't be there. Is, is there any flip side positive to this? Like, uh, has technology also allowed, for instance, those who do want to make sure that they're consuming, like, ethically uh, a chance to find out, you know, the information necessary to do so? Um, yes and no. I think that there's not enough places and spaces online. I think there used to be. But real, but now, like, obviously, the internet allows you to research mm -hmm. who you, like, you know, if you hear this band... Um, I remember like years ago when I was reviewing, when I was working for Metal Edge, so this was, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, there was this one band that I was assigned to cover and the band actually was really good. I really liked what they were doing. They were like an NSBM band. But by doing research on them, I realized that they were fascists. You know, so the internet does allow you to kind of research um, the music that you're listening to. You shouldn't have to research every band that you discover. You do though, yeah. I mean, you yeah, know, you feel, do though, I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, most of the time, I mean, I, I mean, I go through friends. So, I mean, 
I don't do it a lot, but it's because like if a, if a friend or somebody I know that writes for a publication is promoting a group and I know the person that's writing about it, I'm probably going to listen to it and not do the research. But I think that there is opportunity for people to kind of do the research to find out who they're listening to, if that person kind of um, correlates with their own personal perspective on life or not. Um, so it's good in that sense. But I mean, overall, as much as the negativity, there are more people of color getting involved in the underground music scenes. That's just something that's happening. I It's now that you've got more people of color or even more queer people, uh, more trans people involved. The scene is definitely diverse. The next step is to make sure that they're able to get access to the opportunities that everyone else has. So, you know, if your music sucks, your music sucks. But I think the next step is, is making sure that people who are putting out really good music, people that have something unique to say, a different perspective, are being able to get the same opportunities than everybody else. And they're not just dismissed because they have a vagina or they don't have a vagina or they're the wrong hue or, you know, whatever. And that's the next step that we need to do within the music industry is making sure that if the music is good, and this is one of the reasons why I got involved, why, you know, like, yes, I was always a metal fan, but I think one of the reasons why I've stayed a metal fan is because it's just such a great opportunity every day to find and discover new, exciting, unique music. The Absolutely. creativity, yeah, mm. the creativity within the scene is mind-blowing you're always discovering somebody who's doing something really, really cool. But I just want it to be, I want that cool factor to be able to be, everybody has access to getting discovered and, and, you know, and people going, oh, this is really great. Or, you know, I don't really like this, but my friend might like this, you know. And it's just having that opportunity for people to listen to your music and, for you to just have the opportunities to tour or whatever you want to do is just to be equitable. That's based on your talent and your skill and not you're not hindered because you don't look like you should be doing this music. Mm. So you've just mentioned a couple of aspects of the metal scene we really wanted to talk to you about a little bit more because they're kind of key points that, you know, really come out clearly from your book. Um, and one of those is, you know, the paradoxical nature of the scene that you've kind of touched on, uh, which is, you know, on the one hand, it's very clearly exclusionary uh, in so many ways, um, you know, particularly for, uh, you know, black and brown people, especially women. Uh, but on the other hand, it claims to be, as you say, like very egalitarian. Right. And mm -hmm. that it's a space for freedom where you can explore, you know, any topic that you're interested in. Um, I'd really like if you can to like talk a little bit more about, um, you know, what the nature, like what this kind of paradoxical nature of the scene is like, um, you know, and how it's been able to, you know, continue um, to exist. You know, how it's how you can continue to claim that it's on the one hand, like very supposedly egalitarian, but then so clearly not in so many ways. That's a yeah, that's a good question. And I think one of the main things that we're seeing now is the globalization of heavy metal. So there's a lot of um, books, 
you know, a lot of metal scholars are doing a lot of work right now on the globalization of heavy metal. So they will, so it's really cool for people to say, like I know today there was a big uh, event that I missed that was on uh, heavy metal in Afghanistan. So people just love that shit. They love, <laughs> they love saying heavy metal in India, heavy metal in Saudi Arabia, heavy metal in Qatar, heavy metal in China. But these are all monolithic countries. So ethnically, the majority of people are of the same ethnicity, not necessarily religion. I mean, there might be various religions and various, you know, religious faiths within this country. But that is, that is kind of a very, and I'm being very cynical here, but that's a very Eurocentric way of diversity in the heavy metal scene. So mm -hmm. that's what people do is they say, there's no racism in the heavy metal scene because there's people from Indonesia who are really into heavy metal. But we're not looking at it critically in terms of, but who's in Indonesia? <laughs> Everybody's brown in Indonesia. Now, granted, they're not of the same religious faith. And that's another story. But you, it's very disingenuous to counter that old adage of, you know, heavy metal is for everyone. You know, I, I believe it is for everyone, but it's not. Mm. But what people do as kind of a straw man argument when you say, well, there's no diversity in heavy metal, is they start looking at the, the musical scenes within various countries and continents, and that is their defense. But one of the things, and this is a very North American, and this is something actually I should probably, I'm not going to do it for my dissertation, but in my future scholarship is I need to look more at uh, the decolonization of heavy metal because um, what I'm focused on right now from a very North American Western perspective is anti-black racism and how that affects heavy metal. Because in America, especially in the history of popular music, the majority of popular music comes from African-American musicians, African-American music. So I believe that from a uh, North American perspective, when you're talking about race and music, it tends to be a little bit more complicated than if, let's say, we were all in England and, ta mm. and having this conversation, if we're all English, or if I was Australian, or if I was from New Zealand, and we were all sitting here talking about the same thing. So I think from a North American perspective, when you're dealing with anti-black racism, which permeates into every cultural field that's out there, that when you're talking about the differences of inclusion and in heavy metal, it's a whole different conversation to have. Because there's a lot of resentment in terms of how music has been used in North America to make impoverished black people rich which white racists don't like. There's a lot of issues in terms of how the entertainment industry is created where black people can become rich and white people don't like that. And so when you get to this kind of historically traditional white male working class genre of heavy metal and the struggles that heavy metal has had as a 
music and a culture to be seen as legitimate. Because heavy metal has its own stereotypes of classism, you know, working class miscreants, drug addled losers. So they've got their own, we've got our own kind of stereotypes surrounding heavy metal. So there's always, historically in North America, there's always been this <clears throat> um, friction between, let's say, the white working class and the black poor. And now if you translate those differences into music and entertainment and the access to opportunities, there's going to be more friction when we talk about that than there is when we're talking about somebody else. So we can, it's, it's easier for people to accept bands from, you know, if you look at Sepultura, for instance, and how popular in the 80s, you know, they did very well in the States with their first two albums, you know, in terms of people were really interested in Sepultura because they were theoretically a thrash band. But once Sepultura came out with Roots, and they started incorporating the indigenous percussions of the Brazil, the black African Brazilian tribes that they, you know, that grew up, that they knew in, in Brazil. That's when things got a little testy for them. And that's when people were like, oh my God, they're turning into new metal, you know, and new metal is akin for being black or hip hop. So, you know, it's, it's very, you know, that's kind of the issues that we have in terms of it can be, we can get away with saying heavy metal is this universal, global, amazing thing because heavy metal is played and practiced in every country in the world. But because North America in general has such a horrible history with slavery and with, you know, um, over 400 years of oppression of African-American people, how we look at entertainment and cultural artifacts coming out of North America is completely different than if we're talking about something else in another country. So again, heavy metal can get away, they can, we can avoid this problem by saying, oh, well, there's African people playing heavy metal but black African people do not have the same experience as black folks in North America. The history is different. So you can't kind of use this global metal bullshit in order to um, obfuscate issues of race and exclusion in North American heavy metal scenes. That's a really interesting perspective because, I mean, uh, we've in our research on metal in um, the Asia Pacific, uh, I guess we have been making that quote unquote uh, global metal bullshit. Um, but our intent was, of course, to to counter the claim that, you know, to note that uh, there's a problem when we try to talk about what metal is and we only look at the white American context. Uh, right. You know, there there is a diversity when you look at the world. But I, I you know, I'm glad you actually brought this up because we didn't mention it in our in our uh, the, like the stuff we have coming out. But it's very important that uh, this well, this diversity is important to recognize because pretending that you know metal is only white ignores the participation around the world uh, by not noting that the scenes themselves are often not that diverse. Like the Japanese scene, for instance, which I've been looking at, uh, is diverse compared to like the idea that metal is only white because they're all not white, but it's not very diverse in and of itself. 
Uh, it's a lot of, you know, Japanese people. Um, that's a perspective that I think is extremely important. And, and you know, uh, <laughs> I feel a little bit called out, but uh, very, very aptly so, because um, yeah. I hadn't considered that kind of, uh, you know, global diversity is one thing, and it is important in a way, but when it doesn't come with local diversity as well, you still have ultimately a, a lack of diversity, right? Yeah, and I mean, that's, yeah, and I think that that is, you know, it's interesting because um, I feel like as a North, like it's hard doing this work from a Western perspective because, you know, it, 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 it's very, very hard. But in, in some ways, I'm glad that I'm doing it because, you know, I, when I say anti-Black racism, people, you know, some people roll their eyes and they go, oh, you know, here we go. <laughs> Oppression, 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 you know, but I mean, what I'm trying to say is that like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, if you're looking at global metal, but you're looking at countries where there's a monolith, you know, then we're, how much are we talking about diversity? Hmm. And how much are we talking about access to opportunity? And unfortunately, in North America, in a North American context, it's completely different, but historically, it's also been very hard to talk about. So, I mean, to be fair, um, you know, when I say global metal bullshit, I mean, I mean it, be, I mean, I, I get very upset when that is told to me to counter my concerns yeah. right. about anti-black racism. But theoretically, this is a hot mess. We're living in a hot mess here where we're dealing with <laughs> you know, a country or a continent that really has not dealt with its legacy, its past. And because it has not dealt with the fact that you had slaves, you know, for over 400 years, and you haven't really dealt with that in terms of conversations and how that affects people and obviously structural, institutional, systemic discrimination, and the hindrance and then the desperation from marginalized groups to kind of band together and and create their own kind of cultural identity which can be limiting to younger generations because i mean this is one of the you know one of the to be fair and like just to back up a second one of the things that i found from my book which i wasn't entirely surprised but was surprising was that a lot of the black kids that I had interviewed or the young black people that I still talk to, one of the main problems was actually not white folks. It was really dealing with their own communities because they were really, most of the resistance in terms of listening to heavy metal or wanting to be in a heavy metal band or even hang out with their friends who were into heavy metal came from pressure within their family their friends and their community. So a lot of it was, if you do this, you're not black. If you do that, you're not black. If you, you're white or you think you're better if you do this. So it's not just kind of dealing with anti-black racism, it's also dealing with um, people's fears of protection or lack of protection if you go outside of your cultural group and you want to explore doing this. So it's, it's, it goes both ways. So it's not just in some ways saying, well, we're dealing with a racist um, industry. Because we're, I mean, 
it's got its issues, but it's not. I mean, if it was, I wouldn't be in it for, you know, 40 years of my life, you know. Um, but we are also dealing with the ramifications of exclusion and what people do to protect themselves. And one of the things that they do to protect themselves is to tell their children or tell their friends, no, you can't get involved, you can't go to the Deaf Heaven show because there's going to be white people there and they're going to beat you up. So we're kind of also dealing with fear of the fear of people entering non-black spaces and what's going to happen to them. And so, you know, that is kind of another thing when we're talking about this idealization of what heavy metal means. It's not this inclusive community because we don't live in an inclusive community. You can't have heavy metal as an inclusive community when we don't live in a world that's not, that's inclusive. You know, like it can't, you can't, like we're not entering into a fantasy land every time we go into a venue. That's mm. just not reality. But yet there is this positionality. Like if you listen to Rob Halford, even to this day, Rob Halford will be like, oh, metal's for everyone. And it's not. It's not. But mm. it's always positioned that way. But it's like, yeah, it's good for you. But it's not, but it's, but it's not that way. And, you, and it's never going to be that way because we don't live in a world that's fair and equitable. So why should our entertainment outlets be fair and equitable? It's very, that's kind of the supreme irony, isn't it? That um, a scene that often positions itself as rejecting the mainstream society ends up ultimately still perpetuating some of the uh, divisions and the problems that we see in the mainstream society. Yeah, I mean, we can't help ourselves. You know, we can't help ourselves by doing so. But on the other hand, I do agree that it could be that way, but it's not. And, you know, one of the things that I've never been able to find, like, I've never been able to fact check this. But, you know, when I'm talking to people, um, occasionally, like, one of my male journalist friends will say to me they'll say you know like heavy metal people are very conservative especially in america like if you go to like the worst racism i've ever experienced is at a mainstream heavy metal show so if i go to see metallica no offense to metallica but metallica hmm. that's more where i think people would find more resistance than if i go see neurosis who's my favorite band of all time. I love Neurosis. Um, and, you know, it's, it's weird how, yeah, if you go see Testament or, I mean, I, I don't even like saying the names because these are all good people. Um, like, I don't want to say, when I say Metallica, I don't want to say Metallica or a bunch of, you know, this, yeah. that, whatever. But it's really the fan base. And it's yeah. really a conservative fan base. And it's real. I can't, I wish I could have the time to really do a lot of research, but they say that a lot of these mainstream, like the top four, um, like, you know, kind of the big four, they say, so mm. Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, uh, Anthrax, or Testament, or whoever you want to put in the top four, their fan base are the most conservative. And I, I don't know why. I mean, there's, I guess there's a couple of things you could say, like there could be like rampant masculinity, and you could, you know, you could probably make some correlations, um, some socioeconomic correlations as to why these bands tend to bring out the most conservative uh, fans. 
I honestly don't know. Like I, I, you know, I have my ideas, but I don't know. But I do notice that the worst, like the worst experiences I've had have been at mainstream metal shows. When I've been covering them, um, it's been like crazy. And so, so I don't exactly know why that is, but, but you get maybe these guys, it's nostalgia, these guys that used to listen to Metallica in their garage when they were 18 and they turned out voting for Trump. I, I don't know. So, I don't know what the deal is. Besides like um, NSBM, is there kind of ironically the the more the smaller and I guess more brutal, quote unquote, and more um, insular shows are actually more accepting than the big um, major ones? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly, like I tend to go to, it's a toss up. I feel more comfortable at the show, like I personally, feel more comfortable at the smaller groups. But on the other hand, you also have like the problem, one of the issues is, is like, if you go to a festival and the way how the festival is curated. So if you want to do, um, ex like if you go to an extreme underground uh, music festival, you are going to have a variance of people on that roster. And it could be based on um, who just dropped an album, who's got an album coming up, who's friends with who. But I've gone to metal festivals where 90% of the bands have been legit. Mm -hmm. And then they throw in a couple of people that are NSBM. And if you don't know who they are, you're never going to know. But, you know, unfortunately I know, or I've had somebody tell me, oh, did you know that so-and-so's playing today? You know, whatever, you know, watch out for their fan base, you know, whatever. So I think one of the, the issues is that you get a lot of promoters. I think the most of the promoters that I've known over the years have been really cool people that are thinking about this. But if, but you get people who don't care. And my whole thing is, is that if a lot of these, in terms of lyricism, not everybody is saying, you know, I hate black people, <laughs> you know, the lyrics or whatever. But, you know, it can be very obscure and, you know, but whatever. But I think that for me, you know, when I'm talking to people, it's really the fan base that you need to be careful of. So you can go to a festival and this band can be playing. And if they're speaking in Polish, you're not going to know what they're <laughs> saying. But you've got to be careful of the fan base because it's always, in some ways, it's not, you know, if, you, if you're not understanding the contextualism of the lyricism, you don't understand the context. If somebody's talking about uh, Wolverines, in the woods in Germany, and you don't understand like what the historical context is. Good for you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their fan base doesn't understand. And I think this is where, like the people that I've talked to who have gotten assaulted at shows, it's not that the 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 singer is standing on the stage saying, "There's an Asian person, go beat them up." It's really the fans and the fans who know what the band is about. They go see a show. They don't want to see anyone who doesn't look like them at that show. And that's where the problems start. 
Mm. So it's it's a very difficult thing. And it's, I think it's also like if I'm talking to a promoter, for instance, um, and I don't think I ever have talked to, I mean, I've talked to some people I know that promote shows, but I think it's a very difficult conversation to have with somebody who's managing a show because they might not understand in terms of, some people do, but they, you have to, it's not sometimes the band, but it's the fan base. That, mm. that as, a, as a fan, as somebody who's entering a venue, that's who you have to be afraid of, not necessarily who's on the stage. Mm. And it seems like, you know, this is perhaps one of the ramifications of that, um, you know, ideal of complete freedom within the metal scene, right? Insofar as like, it seems like there's a lot of people that are quite reactive to the idea of complete freedom to the extent at which, you know, they're not willing to, you know, speak out about, you know, harmful lyrics or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, bands that are perpetuating harm, you know, through the music or through the things that they're, you know, doing in their personal lives, right? Um, You know, do you think that, you know, that's part of the reason why this issue is so rampant within the scene? Yeah, I think that that's a huge thing because we're even seeing it with America where you've got like the Republican Party. It's just insane where you've got people saying on television these bizarre things and people say it's freedom of speech. You know, we're dealing now with, um, you know, we're, you know, hopefully, you know, um, Afghani refugees will find homes not only in America, but across the world, you will, we will have a number of refugees of people that need a place to, a safe place to stay. But you have politicians who are saying, do we want these people here? Are they terrorists? Like this is stuff that, you know, you like use your inner voice. Like you're not supposed to say this in public. <laughs> you know, like it's just like, it's, just, it's, it's, it's shocking because we're hearing people who are kind of saying things out loud that maybe we're Mm. used to people just using their inner monologues. But I think that that is a problem, which is, and and I do agree that heavy metal and the heavy metal scene um, is a place of liberation. It is a place of freedom. It is a place where I can go get wasted with my friends and, and, and drink too many beers or have a great time and hang out with my, my homies. I, I want that space. I need that. I mean, personally, I need that liberatory space where I can be me. I can wear my metal t-shirt. I can, I don't know, whatever. Um, but it's, so I believe that we do need these spaces of freedom. And I do believe that, especially the underground scene, um, is a space of liberation and just relaxation for a lot of people. So it is hard to bring up these conversations within these liberatory spaces. And I think that's where the crux of my research lies because I don't have, and maybe there isn't a definitive answer as to how you negotiate the two. I mean, I haven't, I don't know if I'll ever be able to come up with that answer myself, but I think it is a problem because, you know, it is known. 
Like if you, you know what's really cool is like if you look at kind of the BBC documentaries of the early days of the new wave of British heavy metal in London, and you go to, they have this footage of these, these scenes in small towns like in Birmingham or Liverpool or, you know, or Leeds, and you see like these guys who are all working class and they've got their like their fake guitars and they're all playing air guitar in this weird venue and for them it's you know this is in the late 60s early 70s but it's a space for these young men to be free of the doldrums of the nine to five working in a factory or whatever crappy job they have that is freedom for them that saturday afternoon where they can go to a venue and listen to iron maiden you know or live out their dreams playing lead guitar in Iron Maiden, which a lot of them were doing. You can't take that away from people. And I certainly, you know, as a, as a scholar, I don't want to uh, criticize that to the point of completely destructing these glimmers of freedom that people have. But it's not going to be, you can't have your freedom by kicking my ass at the same time. And you can't right. have these moments of freedom and liberation if it means oppressing somebody else. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at, which is we can have it both ways. But your freedom is not regulated on my oppression. Mm. And, you know, as a taxpaying citizen, <laughs> I always say this, I can do whatever the hell I want. And y'all ain't going to stop me. <laughs> so if I go into this venue, if you're going to try, you know, if you're going to try and kick my ass, there's going to be a problem. And I think that, um, but we're still in this weird frame. And I, again, like, I think that this, we have to kind of factor in the socio-political climate of how, when we're having these discussions, because that has a lot to do with what we're talking about. And so I think that navigating these spaces of freedom and liberation for metalheads, um, in some ways, it does rely on the social and political spaces that we're doing them in. Mm. And unfortunately, that is just a reality. So, I mean, I love Rob Halford, but, you know, he's the guy that always says, like, metal, you know, is great for everyone, blah, 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 blah. But it's still, but I don't think he would ever kind of look at the sociopolitical climate in which he mm. says that and how that factors into who's free, who's allowed to be free, yeah. who can be free in those spaces it's pretty easy to be free in the metal space when you are rob halford right <laughs> well yeah i mean and he's and you know it's interesting you know it's very interesting because when i was in high school um and i was i was very lucky to have a bunch of like hesher friends <laughs> he sorry hesher yeah so i mean i always had like a bunch of like white guy friends who were really into metal and even though they probably hated me because I was black, I could still talk to them about heavy metal because I knew as much as they did. But there was always this rumor, you know, they were always saying, and this was way before he came out of the closet, but everyone was like, oh, did you know that Rob Halford is gay? And back then, 
nobody cared. Like you were like, oh, he's gay. Okay, cool. But he's still the best singer ever. And so we were able to like, I don't think really anybody cared or defined his sexuality as being part and parcel with his vocality as one of the best singers ever, right? Um, because we were metal fans and we really cared about, we all loved him, but it was really about, does he deliver the goods? Is he a good mm -hmm. singer? You know, and then whatever he, you know, and then, but it's not like that anymore. I find that people would now say, oh, he's gay. No, I can't listen to him. You know, what's my daughter, you know, what's my son going to think, you know, like, and people start getting paranoid and ignorant and stupid. But back in the day, you know, when I was a kid, it really didn't factor into our fandom and our love for Rob Halford, because he is this, he's the metal god. And his sexuality has nothing to do with the fact that every, we all love him you know, for who he is as a, as a singer, as a person. But now, I don't know if that's the case. Mm. And that's really sad. And I can't figure out, you know, we're supposed to get better in time. We're not supposed to revert. And I think sometimes that in heavy metal that we are reverting backwards instead of forwards. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Another kind of related social phenomenon that you talked about in the book that like I definitely resonated with um, really strongly was the idea of like exclusion that happens um, when people have to like fight so hard to enter the scene to begin with and then end up, um, you know, kind of aggressively barring entry to others who are, you know, going through a similar experience of finding difficulty entering into that space. Uh, yeah. And again, I was wondering if you could talk more about that because I, I personally found it really interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's interesting how many, um, you know, when I was, I, I you know, I call it the only one syndrome. And yeah. I know that, you know, it's still happening in terms of people. It's like this weird tokenism where, if, let's say, a black person or a person of color or even a woman, you know, has gotten to a place within their localized scene. Um, and they resent another person, you know, coming in and, you know, kind of entering that scene because they feel like, well, I'm the only person, I'm the only woman in this venue. And if another woman comes in, she's going to take my shine. You know, she's going to take something away from me. And, you know, it's called, you know, the crab in the barrel mentality when you're dealing, like you'll never hear a, a straight white man having this problem it's usually it usually has to do with like a marginalized body so you know in the metal scene it might be a woman it might be you know somebody else but one of the interesting things I noticed as you know uh in you know when I was growing up in Toronto um you know in my 20s and really into the grunge scene and my best friend and I would go to shows and so there'd be like the two black you know women we'd be the only, you know, maybe one out of four black people in an entire venue in Toronto. And I'm the type of person where if I, you know, I've always been interested in other black people in the scene. So I'd be the type of person who I'd be like, hey, what's up? If I saw another black person or smile or acknowledge them. 
And I was constantly getting dirty looks or people turning their back to me like they didn't want to be associated with the, other, the only other black person in that scene. And it was very hurtful. And, you know, I didn't understand it. Um, and so when it came to writing the book, that was a chapter that I wanted to write about because, um, and when I interviewed several people, I always said, like, you know, what happens when you go to shows? Like, how do you interact if you see another black person at shows? Do you say, hey, what's up? Or, hey, are you a fan? Or Because a lot of people, one thing I've noticed is that, like, I've gotten emails from young people who that, that say, I want to go see... Pantera, let's say, but I know that I'm going to be, but none of my friends want to go. So should I go to a show alone? And they don't want to go to a show alone. They want to mm. go with friends, mm. but they also don't want to go alone and be the only black person there. So they're kind of wondering, like, should I go to the show alone? You know, am I going to get my ass kicked or what's going to happen to me? So a lot of people do want to go with friends. They want to find like-minded people whether you're black, whether you share the same ethnicity, the same gender, whatever, um, it's a natural occurrence. So I think that it was interesting interviewing people about these weird interactions that we have, you know, within these spaces where some people are super friendly when they see another black person, but then you do have the gatekeepers who are saying, I, you know, I went through hell making myself known, you know, in this, you know, in New York or in New Jersey or wherever I live. And how dare you come into my space and try and take this away from me. And, you know, and that happens a lot. And it's really unfortunate, but it has to do more with kind of like the systemic issue mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the interpersonal, any interpersonal friction. It just has to do with the fact that these spaces are not predominantly spaces where you see a lot of people of color in. And some people like being the only black friend or the only Asian friend. And usually those relationships are one-sided and pretty dysfunctional. But in terms of your self-esteem, sometimes being the only black friend is beneficial to you. Um, and that is, you know, you're dealing with insecurity, you're dealing with all this stuff, and it all kind of manifests itself in that gatekeeper role. So I hear that all the time. I witnessed that myself, where um, people have shunned me because they're like, nope, I've got this. I don't want you here, mm. especially when mm. I was younger. I mean, it doesn't happen much when I'm, you know, this age, but, you know, but I mean, when I was, when I was younger, I just went through that, you know, and, but it's all these really weird residual issues that deal with race and exclusion and difference that are very, that are in some ways are very natural, but it's also very harmful and it hinders people from really actively participating in their localized scenes yeah so kind of going back and uh, moving to how all this thinking is leading to what you're working on now uh you're currently uh finished your coursework and are all but dissertation so just finishing up the final thesis uh if it's 
uh, if this isn't, you know, uh, under wraps, if it's not all secret, uh, can you let us know what your thesis is about, what kind of data you're using, and uh, what you are going to be looking at as you as you produce this final document? Yeah, so my the the basis of my dissertation is really looking at extremity and its mm -hmm. various manifest manifestations within the underground music scene. So I'm looking at um, extreme voc vocality. Um, um, I'm looking at extreme performance. Um, and then I'm obviously looking at the music. And so my, my kind of my argument is looking at kind of black youth participation within extremity mm -hmm. and how it's a counter narrative to the racialized stereotypes that exist about black people. So I'm really interested in, let's say, you know, anger. So expressions of anger. How is anger expressed within these extreme music scenes as a positive when if a black youth was to express anger on the street, mm. how it's policed and regulated by society? So I'm trying to kind of, you know, my argument is always that black youth should look at extreme music and extreme music culture as a sense of liberation in order to express internalized trauma and generational trauma. And I'm kind of arguing that these spaces are more conducive to expressing and acknowledging issues of trauma than they are in other genres of music and their accompanying music cultures. Mm. So what I'm doing to make a long story short is kind of looking, I'm not replicating my book at all, mm -hmm. um, but I'm also kind of using you know, my interest from my general readership book. And I did really want to kind of change it to more scholarly theoretical book where I could look at various academic disciplines and try and pull from all of these. Like, so it's very interdisciplinary. Um, however, because I'm an ethnomusicologist, it's more of an ethnography where I'm using more ethnographical research than I am using sociological, like, you know, qualitative, quantitative methods or others. I just can't deal with that. <laughs> I just, I just can't. <laughs> I do, I have a, I have a, I have a, like, my undergrad was in, um, I did a double major in sociology and political science and the sociology part, I just couldn't, I just was not good at. Um, but anyway, so it's more of like, so the, you know, we're in a COVID time. So in terms of me doing a lot of ethnographic research, mm. it's not been great. I probably <laughs> will not be able to really get anything effectively done um, in terms of my dissertation. But what I've been doing really is just, you know, interviewing a lot of people and doing, but, you know, I've been really kind of focused on the theory and just really excited about taking these ideas that we more we might see in like kind of like critical theory black critical theory and trying and applying them mm -hmm. into like thinking about music and thinking about kind of aggressive music but i i'm right now so the last month or so i've been really i have been really focused on trauma and writing like learn reading about trauma and also kind of intergenerational trauma and living in New York really experiencing a lot of black youth that are dealing with just legacies of trauma and trying to figure out like 
yeah, where are these spaces that allow them to be free? How can you find these spaces that allow you to scream and shout and get into a mosh pit and almost just, you know, be wild with abandon as a black person without your body being policed? And so I think that's what I'm, I'm, I'm looking at right now in my dissertation is the freedom and liberation that you can find within these underground music scenes. And how can we get more marginalized bodies in these scenes and allow these marginalized bodies to find a semblance of freedom and liberation, whether it be just temporary within the club, within the venue, but it's really about using the anger and the aggression of heavy metal and extreme metal and seeing it as a positive manifestation within people to allow themselves to think freely, to think independently, to just be, to be individuals. And I think that for you know marginalized bodies, especially in America, we're so used to being seen as a monolith I'm trying to find, I'm trying to figure out if getting involved in kind of underground, your local underground music scene, there's opportunities to cultivate one's individuality outside of these monolithic boxes that marginalized people find themselves in. Hmm. So that's hmm. kind of what I'm doing. Um, you know, some days I feel really optimistic, but, you know, as, you know, as scholars, you probably know, it's like this research is hard. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have days where I don't know if I'm going in the right direction, but, um, I'm really passionate about the music that I write about and the, that I listen to every day. And so we just try and figure out like, you know, how I can encourage other people to be just as excited about this music as I am. I don't know if it, uh, it's helpful or, or not uh, to say that I, I have no idea if I'm going in the right direction any day. So <laughs> um, I, I definitely sympathize with that feeling. Um, and you can definitely, yeah, produce excellent stuff even when you're not sure if the direction's the right way. <laughs> you, yeah, you just, you never know. And I mean, it's hard because I've been very lucky that I'm working, that my, um, that the faculty, you know, at Columbia has been extremely supportive. Mm. Um, I've been very lucky because I know some people that have not been as lucky and, but it's, but we're all trying to figure it out. You know, we're all trying to figure it out as it goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. So another question, of course, we're never supposed to ask PhD students um, is, you know, when you're hoping to finish your PhD and then, you know, if everything goes as it should, um, what do you think your next steps will be following from there? I really want to, um, I've got like 10,000 things I want to do, but the main <laughs> thing that I really like doing is I love to teach. And so mm -hmm. I really would like to teach. Um, I just want to work, teach at a university work with undergrads. Um, I love teaching. I love a working with undergrads. Um, I just, I love it. So I just, that's what I want to do. I want to write more books. I, there's a couple of documentaries I want to work on. There's a screenplay. 
I just want to write, 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 write. I've been writing forever and I would just will continue writing. But yeah. I do, I'm just, the way, I don't know, as you guys know, like academia is so daunting and I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, I'm scared to enter, you know, we see the politics as graduate students or we see the politics as, you know, newly minted PhDs. And you're like, do I, is this the route I want to go in? But I think that I, but I just really like working with young people. Um, I really like working with students and I'm always in awe of what young people bring to the table. And I'm really looking forward to teaching. Um, I do feel like in terms of my scholarship and research, it's just a continual thing for me. I mean, there's just so many things I need to read. There's so many things I need to learn. And I think as an academic, I will probably continue learning until I die. Hmm. But I do feel very passionate about uh, extreme metal. It's my life. It's the music I listen to every day. And the the benefits I get from just being a fan, um, I just want to share with other people, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of that excitement. And just the musicianship. I'm not a musician. I come from a family of musicians, but I'm not a musician. And I'm just such a nerd. Um, I just love listening to musicians and trying to figure out what they're doing. And I love I'm getting into production and engineering, and I just want to learn it all. Mm. So I feel like it's such a great, for me, I'm just really stoked and passionate about what I do, but there's always a lot to learn. And I think that in terms of dealing with metal studies, I've just learned so much in the last, um, since I started, since I went back to graduate school, I've just learned so much. I'm just, it's it's amazing. So, yeah. Mm. So to kind of like synthesize all this together, um, I guess you drawing on your expertise, drawing on what you've learned, uh, you know, with decades of being a fan, being a journalist, uh, now being an academic and a researcher. Uh, why is it that you think, you know, you, you mentioned that in some ways things are getting worse, uh, but despite, you know, these challenges, despite this gatekeeping, despite the racism uh, that, that does exist in the scene, why do you think it is that metal has been able to become so important to so many diverse individuals with so many backgrounds? Uh, why is it that a genre known for songs of uh, murder and horror and slaughter to become like a source of positivity and unity and for a scene with a history of exclusion to become a source of, of liberation and meaning? I think that it taps into the anger that we all have inside of us. And I think that anger is not always a bad thing. I think that anger provides energy and anger provides individuality and for some of us, not everyone, but you know, there's people I know who, this is not a stereotype, but like, I guess I can, I'm only gonna speak for myself. Um, I grew up a very angry person and I grew up with a lot of rage and I still deal with that anger and rage every day in some manifestation in my life. And if it wasn't for heavy metal, I don't know where I would be because I think that we need that exter- that external push of energy. And, you know, and it's, you know, when we talk about, and, and I guess one thing is y- y'all know, we all know that, you know, in heavy metal, 
I mean, there's so many various subcultures, there's so many different sounds and moods and stuff, but there's something that ties, even if you're listening to something like, um, you know, Cascadian black metal or something that's, or folk metal or, you know, something that's soft and folky and classical if you're into symphonic metal, there's something, there's a philosophy that ties it all together. And it's one of freedom and it's one of um, un to not compromise oneself. And there's something that screams individuality and oneness that I think that all heavy metal fans, we understand. You know, we can do with it what we will, you know, um, but for me, there's something that is even below the music, beneath the music, there's something there. There's a meaning and there's a feeling that really, it, for me, it taps into who I am as Lena, mm -hmm. not as a black woman who's, not as a middle-aged black woman, not as even a woman, but something that acknowledges me as an individual. I sound like Henry Rollins, but really, <laughs> I sound like Henry Rollins. But you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not saying I'm a, a solo, what do you call it, a solopist? A solopist? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I'm, not, I'm not going that, mm -hmm. you know, but you know, but I mean, it's something that I think speaks to people outside of all the garbage we have to deal with every day, outside of our education or even our ability, you know, like our body, what we have, you know, it's, there's something about it that just speaks to, it individualizes us in a world that doesn't want us to be individuals. And I think that's what I'm tr always trying to articulate in my writing or what I do in my life. And I think that's what I'm trying to articulate when I'm talking to uh, people um, about why I love the music, you know? So, you know, there's some stuff I don't like. I mean, I don't listen to, like I'm not into folk metal or whatever. Um, but I think that there's certain music that regardless of the sound, there's something that resonates with me that belies all of the otherness that others put on me. It's the mm. only way that I can feel like I'm an ind individual. Mm. And I think that for like the, my friends, um, you know, my metal friends, the people that I know who are just as passionate as I am, I think that we all feel the same way. We're all different people, but I think that we can resonate with something that is, is in some ways is unspeakable. We all get it. And I think that's why I like it. It's not like it's a private club, but I think that we all, there's some of us who have dealt with so much pain in our lives that we, we were seeking for something and we found it and we found it within the scene. And mm. I, yeah, and I think that's, that's all I could say. It's very well said, yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for um, making the time to talk to us and sharing with us your experiences, both in research and in your personal life. I think it's given us, uh, you know, a different and more nuanced understanding of the scene that we've been studying. Absolutely. Um, and it was a really wonderful discussion. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank yeah, thank you. It's, it's great to talk to, um, I guess, like-minded people. And um, I really appreciate it. I love your podcast and I really... <sighs> appreciate that um you've invited me on thanks so much means a lot coming you. from yeah. you yeah. thanks so much yeah. thank you for listening to lingua Italica. we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you stay tuned for our next episode before we leave we just wanted to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora nation we pay respects to their elders past present and emerging <laughs> <laughs>